Have the Lakers gotten back on track with Magic? Why doesn't LeBron deserve the MVP award? Do the MVP voters watch enough games? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to bring on the show today, friend of the program, Sam Amick, an NBA reporter at USA Today. And, uh, and it's great enough to kind of, you know, take a drive with us today. So, Sam, how's it going? <laughs> Coach Nick, doing great, buddy. Long time no talk. Just uh, cruising down. I'm actually headed to Oakland for a little Warriors business. So, uh, nice to join you here. Oh, nice, nice. So, you, you actually are in the area, right? You bounce back between, like, Warriors and the Kings? Yeah, I kind of treat Oakland and Sacramento as the two home markets if I'm trying to stay off the road. You know, I, I try to be efficient with the schedule, figure out, you know, if it's not Warriors or Kings coverage, then obviously figure out who's coming through town, uh, who I might be able to connect with. Uh, but, and I've told people this countless times, you know, the Warriors admittedly have, have aided my cause a little bit by having a, such a relevant team, you know, in the market and, and, you know, where you don't have to get on a plane to go see one of the best teams in the league. Oh, a backhanded comment to the Kings. Oh, I didn't mean it that way, but yes, that's very true. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, they have a new arena, which I haven't yes. seen, but I've heard it's amazing, right? It's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, the the arena itself is beautiful. I think the one thing that is probably lost on most folks, unless you're from here and, and, and had the old arena as part of your routine, is that it, it's a pretty profound difference having the arena downtown as part of the city, as opposed to Arco Arena slash Power Balance slash Sleep Train, where that was about 10 minutes north of the city. And, and really, that arena kind of fed right into the, the stereotype of Sacramento as a cow town. It was out in the middle of the fields and there was nothing around it, you know, for most of the time that it was up there. And now, I mean, it's a not only a beautiful new arena, but they have it smack dab in the middle of downtown and there's more restaurants down there than ever and bars things like that so more of a metropolitan feel and, and they did a, a great job at the arena i mean it's a very nice place to watch a game uh, i'm sure you've heard they've got that unique feature where they can actually open up the uh the hangar style windows on a nice night it's, it's the only gym in the league where you know you can have kind of an inside outside element to it so a uh, very nice place and, and one of these days they'll get the team going too yeah, yeah, I've been, I mean, wanting to go up there and kind of do a little feature on it. So I'm, I'm figuring out when the schedule happens so I can do a little uh, YouTube, you know, tour through the place. But uh, either way, I think we should take a trip down the coast a little bit uh, and talk about the Lakers and what was happening there. I know you did a little bit of reporting recently about it, and so uh, a pretty big shakeup. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Are they, are they in that Sacramento Kings purgatory, or is this like the sign that they're heading out of it? We'll see. I mean, I've been generally giving a thumbs up to the addition of Magic. Um, and I think a lot of people are focusing on the wrong things when it comes to him and the question of, is he going to have the work ethic? Is he going to make all the calls? Is he going to grind like so many other executives in the NBA? And I think that's what they got Rob Polinka for. <clears throat> so I think the debate, you know, on that front is more about Rob and his staff uh, you know, the Bus Brothers, who are still part of it. Um, you know, Ryan West, a big part of it. With Magic, and the reason I think it's a positive, is that 
I, you know, I understand that LA is not what it used to be in terms of the marketability. And, and you know, you have kind of this, this uh, flattening effect across the league that social media has, has, you know, played a part in where back in the day, you know, LA and New York, Chicago, they, they had this recruiting advantage that nobody else had. So it's not what it used to be, but I think it, it does still matter. And I think when you combine that advantage with magic and what he brings to the table when it comes to player relationships and the ability, bottom line, to, to move the needle with today's superstar and also because of his business profile, I think that's a key factor too. I think you're going to find a lot of players who are intrigued by the idea of not only playing for the Lakers but learning a few things about the way that Magic has built his empire off the floor. So, um, you know, it's intriguing. It's not foolproof, and, and I don't know what direction they're going to go in. But they have, you know, to answer your question, Nick, they're not in the King situation in terms of um, being hamstrung by their own decisions at this point. They've got some promising young players. The, 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 the elephants in the room, the Timofey Mozgov and Luol Deng deals are just disastrous. And, and obviously they wish they – had not inked those guys with the previous regime with Mitch Kupchak and Jim Buss. Um, you know, but they got work to do. They got moves to make. And we'll see if they can pull it off. Uh, for sure. I mean, my question here about with Magic is that, I mean, there's no question he's sort of going to be the face and the recruiter and he's going to energize the room and when they're bringing in the guys for, for free agents. But, like, none of these guys were born when he last played. It, probably, or you know, roughly, in a way that I don't know if Magic even means much to these guys anymore do you have a feeling if like you know they actually understand like who he was and what he did and would that even be a, an object of of uh they look up to that i you know i mean there's probably a threshold there where you know if a guy's 21 maybe a little bit tough one guy in particular um you know that i think is germane to this debate is a guy like paul george i mean the strong sense i've gotten uh, from the paul george side of things is that not only was he intrigued by playing for the Lakers before, having grown up in the area, but that, yes, magic matters to him. Uh, and, and two things come to mind. For one, his playing career was transcendent enough that, you know, this is not a case of guys having to pull the history book out and figure out what he did. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me even of, like, Giannis, you know, Antetokounmpo and the funny story where Giannis didn't really know Jason Kidd's resume right mm -hmm. well to me i mean jason you know jay kidd had a, an amazing nba career but it's not as transcendent it's not as high profile as somebody like magic so i think that cuts through the, the course of time if that makes sense but on top of that and probably more relevant is that magic has been out there um all throughout you know the time as these guys have come up in their basketball lives he's been out there business wise he's been out there on espn he's got a, a media career where he's, he's been in the public profile. It's not like an Oscar Robertson situation where you might hear from him back, you know, when the NBA finals roll around or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. You know, Magic's been out there. And, uh, and again, the early indications I've gotten from, I guess you'd call it kind of the superstar community, is that, uh, you know, Magic does move the needle even with the young players. Okay, well, that's good to know. And so basically what you're saying about Paul George uh, I mean, it seems everyone wants to say to done deal. He's gone. He's not going to stay in Indiana, and he's going to definitely try and get you know go back to L.A. That's is that is that true? You you know everything, so is that true? I wish I knew everything. That <laughs> one though, I do I do have a, a good feel for it. I I would say, 
I mean, I've been doing this long enough to know that things change. And so who knows if there's some development down the road, but very accurate that he has a extremely strong interest in playing for the Lakers. Um, he would love to win a title in Indiana, truly cares about the idea of, of making that kind of history as a member of the Pacers, having his jersey retired there. But unfortunately for the Pacers right now, I just he's not he's clearly not seeing the vision and he's not seeing, you know, the uh, the avenue to make that happen. And in, in the absence of that, I think he gets the wandering eye. The other thing here to watch is that, you know, the end of this year, when all NBA votes are tallied, uh, Paul, in order to get that designated player extension that would give him roughly an extra $30 million, he needs to make uh, one of these all NBA teams. And so from the Pacers perspective, I feel like that's their puncher's chance at keeping Paul and, and the only last hope they have. Uh, it's a little, a little crazy that it might hinge on a media vote. But, uh, you know, that contract would give them something that they could offer him that nobody else could. And, you know, if that happens, you know, $30 million, a lot of money. So who knows if, if that ended up happening. But uh, not looking great for the Pacers right now. Right. And just so we're clear, uh, that ha- that vote has to happen for this year, right, for him to be eligible, right? Or is it next year Correct. as well? It's this year. I believe it's this year. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the final two, I want to say. And I wish I had that in front of me. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but I do know, you know, I'm talking about this year. You know, getting it this year would, would uh, kind of give the Pacers a, a little bit of hope. But, you know, I also feel like Paul's made a lot of money, and he's one of those guys that is not only at the stage of his career where you're going to want to do what's best for you long-term as opposed to short-term financial gain. I think also, and I can't speak for him, but you got this unique backstory where you had such a gruesome injury a couple summers ago when he breaks his leg. and and you see your career flash before your eyes. Um, if I was in his shoes, that would change me as a person. That would lead, you know, that would make me just want to do what my heart told me, even if it cost me some money. You know, I, I think the way he's wired at this point in life, you know, should probably be taken into account too. Sure, sure. And you're, you're, you're kind of describing the Kevin Durant situation too, who left a lot of money on the table to follow his heart and, uh, and leave his his, uh, his, his best friend, I suppose, behind. But I want to talk about our friends over at Blue Apron. They deliver fresh, high-quality ingredients. And trust me, they make a big difference. When my wife compliments me on making pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple, don't get me wrong, I'll take all the credit, but it's really Blue Apron's simple, easy-to-follow instructions. You can customize the menu to fit your taste and schedule, and it's affordable. At less than 10 bucks per person per meal, you'll be... Sp- You'll be making savory dishes like vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips. It's the equivalent of hitting a game-winning three in the defender's face every time you fire up your stove. So head over to blueapron.com slash coachnick and you'll get your first three meals free with free shipping by simply typing in that simple URL, blueapron.com slash coachnick. I'm telling you, this is a game changer. I'm kind of curious, do you think that Rob Polinka, who was an agent for all these years and, and well-respected and, and very good at what he did, do you feel like that there's a some sort of parallel to what, like Bob Myers' role and how he evolved into the general manager position with the Warriors? Yeah, I mean, that's the certainly the best-case scenario. Um, a couple differences come to mind, and, you know, and for one, it should be noted that, you know, Rob and Bob actually worked together with the Wasserman Group for quite a while, uh, you know, before Rob had gone his own way. And so you do have, obviously, this trend in the NBA 
uh, mini trend, I guess, of, of agents becoming executive. Justin Zanuck with the uh, the Bucks is another example, and you know, and there have been others. Jason Levian during his time with the Grizzlies and the Kings. So there's there's been some good. There's been some not so good. Bob is the shining example and a guy who's done a fantastic job. The one distinction that I think will be interesting to kind of just observe and monitor about Rob's tenure is that, and you know, between if you compare Bob and Rob, um, people kind of forget that Bob came in as the assistant GM under Larry Riley. And, you know, listen, right out the gate, it was pretty obvious that the there was a succession plan in place. So it wasn't like, you know, he came up and worked his way through the ranks or anything. He, he was, you know, he was kind of deemed as the guy of the future, but still because Larry was still there running the show and because Larry had a lot of respect, you know, people also forget Larry's the guy that drafted Steph Curry and really got this ball rolling for the Warriors. Um, Bob had, you know, very minimal pressure in his first couple of years and he had the ability to learn on the job and to be uh, just kind of, you know, dip his toes into it, if you will, and then find his way and then eventually take over, I want to say about 18 months or two years in. It didn't take long, but that's one difference where Rob is, this is going to be baptism by fire. They've got work to do right now. They are, they are literally and figuratively doing crash courses on the CBA. You know, Magic just the other day tweeted out a picture of himself and Rob and Adam Silver. They went to have a CBA school session, if you will, to learn all about the collective bargaining agreement. You know, and listen, Rob knows it very well. You have to having the kind of career that he's had as an agent. But, uh, I mean, I can't even tell you from covering the league and, and, you know, having that be part of my purview, like right about the time you think you have a good grip on it, there's, you know, there's a, a hundred more things to learn. So uh, Rob's going to be under the gun just like Magic and the rest of their staff just trying to turn that thing around. Sure. And we, we have a couple of buddies in, in the L.A. area that would certainly be able to help them with the ins and outs of the uh, CBA Mr. as Kuhn, well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we'll find out what happens with those with them, too, because certainly, yes, it's a, yeah, uh, a complicated process, to say the least. Uh, right. and, by the way, I guess Vlade probably could have used a couple of these courses. It's funny. Um, I wanted to ask the Kings. I don't think he did anything like that, but I completely agree. And <laughs> there's something charming about it's a weird kind of probably a weird word to, word to put on it. But there's something charming about like Magic and Rob kind of just. Not, not really having any, I don't know if you call it ego or like just being very humble about like, all right, we understand we got a lot to learn. So like there was something funny to me about Magic tweeting that picture out because, you know, he's not trying to put on any airs mm-hmm. and, and act like he knows it all, which to be honest, as much as I like Vlade, I do kind of feel like that's a little bit the tone that he had tried to take that, you know, that, that he he wasn't nearly as willing to admit what he, he didn't know at least that was the sense i got and mm-hmm. you know and then and then i think i think it almost pr wise it hurts you because then people assume the worst then when you make that trade to philadelphia where you know you could have used the stretch provision to uh forget who we're talking about there chuck a no not chuck a's uh geez who was in that deal jason thompson you know regardless when yeah. you when you when you didn't do a trade a certain way and people assume the worst, assume you don't know the CBA. Um, you know, it just turned into a bad PR situation in Sacramento. Whereas with the Lakers, they're kind of taking the transparent approach. Like, you know, we know a lot, but we have a lot more to learn. And 
and we're going to try to find our way together. So, you know, we'll see how it works for him. Sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about the MVP race because uh, you also did an article about that. You seem to write an article all the time and they have about every different thing. So it's lots of fun things to talk about with you. And, uh, you know, this, this feels to me like it could be uh, the first year in a long while where there are, you know, multiple, multiple legit choices and, you know, someone's going to be legitimately angry uh, at the result uh, or more than a few. Um, so what is your take? I, you know, I know you can, you want to argue for everybody and they all have a good arguments, but come on, give us, give us a lay it on the line here. Who do you think should win the, or how about this? Maybe not even who you think, but the, as these narratives take hold and a lot of times you can read the tea leaves easier, who, who do you think is going to win it? I think James Harden's going to win it. That's what I would say right now. Now, partly, you know, anecdotal discussions with fellow reporters, um, but also, and to give credit where credit is due, a friend and colleague of mine, Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post, had done a straw poll last week. Now, granted, the disclaimer that he gave was that uh, he polled 104 media members. And if anybody doesn't know, the MVP award is voted on by the media. But not I don't know the breakdown in terms of how many of that 104 were actual voters, because he did make the distinction that they were not all actual voters. You know, like I, you know, I, I will have a vote, uh, but I feel like Harden is out in front, and I feel like everybody is waiting to see if the Thunder can get into the top four, top five. Top four is going to be very hard. Top five is possible, um, because you know whether or not people think it's fair, collective success is always a part of the equation. And the Rockets are the, the funny thing here is that being third in the West. If you put that in historical context, it's typically pretty hard to be the MVP if you're not a top two team in your conference. But I think the Rockets uh, check that box because expectations versus reality are, are in their favor, meaning that people just didn't, you know, they were the eighth seed last year. People didn't think they'd be that good this year. People questioned the Mike D'Antoni hire, questioned the roster moves. Nobody really saw this coming. So it's like, you know, their third place is almost the same as a top two finish in every other year. Um, so, I mean, that's how I see it. But I'm fascinated by the debate in general, Nick, because, you know, like I t- yesterday I did an NBA TV hit with uh, Jared Greenberg and Isaiah Thomas. And Isaiah had sat there, you know, he had given his vote, his perspective on why Kawhi Leonard should be the MVP. And I've run into a lot of executives and, and really, like, big-time NBA names who feel like it should be Kawhi. Um, so, you know, the vote's going to be fascinating. You know, if, if I was handicapping it, I think it would be James, Russ, you know, and, and probably Kawhi and then LeBron coming in fourth at this point. But, you know, we also have 10 or 12 games left, whatever it is. And, you know, I think these moments late in the season actually still do matter too. Okay, that's, that's interesting. And I, and I agree. I mean, you guys also did a different, a different kind of poll where you actually went into the front offices to ask uh, those people. And I think that, if I'm not mistaken, Harden also was the leader, but not by a lot, but he was the leader in that poll as well, right? Yeah, he will. The trip about the poll that I had done was it was 30, I think by the end of it, 32 execs. We didn't, a few of them rolled it late. Um, I want to say I, th- I had 20 heads of front office now four of the teams you know it was it was almost the entire league so four of the teams i disqualified because they were subjective when you're talking about Cavs, thunder rockets 
uh, Spurs, the, you know, the teams with the guys in the running. I didn't even bother. And to be honest, I, I did reach out to a few of them. And once they all predictably stumped for their guy, I kind of said, all right, you know, I, don't, I don't think there's much value in that. Right. Um, then I also, you know, we talked about the Lakers. I, I had made another exception or, you know, or a disexception, I guess, for Rob Palenka because he was James Harden's agent. I felt like asking him, you know, what he thought was going to be pretty obvious that he would want James to be the guy. So that's, you know, that, that gets you down to 25 potential heads of front office. Um, and by the end of it, I think we had 22 chiming in. Uh, one of one of the teams said they just couldn't make up their minds, you know, the, the GM at that spot. So, but what was weird is that, yes, James was out front, but, uh, you know, you had different takeaways between the head of the front office and guys who were maybe assistant GMs or lower level guys in the front office. Um, the, not a lot of LeBron support. You know, one guy out of 20 in the first voting had voted for LeBron, but then you had a bunch of LeBron love from other guys who were not the head of the front office, if that makes sense. I'm kind of giving it to you in circles here, but, uh, you know, interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, and that's the other thing I find fascinating about LeBron is that, like, I, I get it. There's some sort of MVP fatigue. We've seen that across the board from, you know, Michael Jordan could have won a lot more, I'd imagine, uh, and, and we've seen it in the past for other players as well. So I get it. I mean, I guess Kareem could have, you know, probably won more than I think the six that he won. So, so that makes sense to me, but, like, I, I don't know. I'm watching him play, and I'm looking at this. The, the, it's, you know what it makes, what compels me to, to want to choose him is the minutes per game that he is playing. I mean, it's like now it's a controversy because they're trying to rest these guys and play. But the bottom line is he's playing a lot of games. He's playing like more minutes than he ever has. And he's still doing this. And I think for some reason that's compelling to me. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, is there any late season push here that's going to finally get him back to – I mean, you have to imagine he should be – he should be the, at least in the top two of the picks, right? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see it. I don't see him. You talking about top two MVP pick? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, if LeBron, I don't know why LeBron would be fourth. Is all I'm saying. Uh, two things come to mind. The Cavs, as a group, uh, this is not a very impressive title defense regular season. Uh, they're a pretty weak top seed in the Eastern Conference. Now injuries have played a part. You lose Kevin Love for a long time. You lose J.R. Smith. I get all that, but I felt like. They missed an opportunity, or LeBron did, to, to you know seize the narrative for the MVP race when you know they started dropping games recently. They hadn't been playing that well. They, their defense, and I think this kills him a lot. You know, everything you're saying is true. I keep highlighting the fact that that you know for all the focus on Russ and the triple double average and historic element of what he's doing, you know, LeBron, and, and this is for James too. But here's a here's a stat that I keep trying to share LeBron's current numbers and I don't have them in front of me, but I'm talking points, rebounds and assists. Um, there's a, a historic element to what he's doing as well. Oscar Robertson has reached those marks, those averages five times. And Michael Jordan is the only other guy to have done it. And, and MJ as great as he was only did it once. So I, I feel like Russ should not be the only guy who is being given some love and some credit for making history here because the other one is, is Harden and his numbers. It's, it's also Oscar Robertson, but it, it happened twice instead of once. And, you know, one season of crossover there, 61, 62, where Oscar averaged the triple double. But now, so that's the positive stuff with LeBron. The negative stuff is that 
we know that in any given moment he could lock down anybody in the NBA defensively. But I think it's a bad look for him that as a guy who can defend at a high level and as the captain and the leader of that team, that they have the 21st rated defense in the league. It's just not impressive. You know, that that matters to me. You know, if you look at the you know, to compare it to Harden's candidacy, we all know James is terrible defensively, but there's an element of respectability to have the Rockets, I think, currently sitting around 13th or 14th yeah. in defensive rating. Like for them, that's pretty decent. Um, same thing with the Thunder, where they're they most of the year they've been top 10, I think, around nine in defense. It, it just it reflects poorly, I think, on LeBron that that you know whatever part he's played in the collective effort defensively, that they're as bad as they are. Ah, that's a great point. And, you know, if, as a coach, it frustrates me because, right, you know that they'll turn it on and they'll get they'll suddenly find their lockdown defense. And you're not supposed to be able to do that. But they're in the East and they're, you know, and LeBron is LeBron. And, you know, I, I get that totally. And, in fact, I'm, I'm going to have to do a, a breakdown on the Cavs defense to kind of explain exactly what's going on there because it is, uh, it's got to be one of their, you know, their lowest rating in a long, long time. And, um, and, you know, I, I get it. And I do know that one thing that can really help is Harry's Razors, a place to get high-quality razors to shave your face. The trial set came to my door in a cool package with shaving gel, four razors, an easy-to-hold handle, and an even cooler story about their founders, Jeff and Andy, who literally bought their own factory to make razors for two bucks a blade, half of what you'd pay when going through the hassle of driving to the drugstore, waiting for the dude to open up the special locked case, since I guess there's a black market for stolen razor blades or something, and that's if you even remember to buy them while you're getting shampoo and soap and everything else. So head over to harrys.com slash coach Nick and you'll get their trial set for free. There's a small shipping fee and you'll get a truly great shave out of it and you'll always have that smooth shave and soft skin. That's harrys.com slash coach Nick to have all of your shaving needs delivered right to your door and you'll have a shave as smooth as a crossover step back pull up swish. Now we're talking about Russ for a second the triple doubles and you know from what I've heard around the league um it sounds to me like Russell Westbrook's primary motivating factor on the court is triple-doubles. And the only question I have is, is that a bad thing? Um, they win when he gets them, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of, you know, that, that's kind of how where I stand on it. Hey, Nick, I hate to hit the rewind button on our, on our debate, but I want to... I wanna, Add one quick point. I know you're the host, and I'm breaking the rules. <laughs> Go right ahead. I'm, I'm hijacking it here. On the LeBron front, and, and admittedly, I uh, probably not the safest thing, but I had looked it up as I was driving here real quickly. You mentioned the minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, a ton of minutes considering his age, considering uh, you know uh, how many trips to the finals in a row we're talking here. So, you know, I get that this is a little bit of a skewed number, but he's pl- he, he's playing essentially the same uh, number of minutes as he did in his first eight seasons in the NBA. This mark, minutes per game-wise, it was either this mark or higher in his first eight seasons. Now, I know that's kind of silly because he's so much younger, uh, but I feel like that subplot has been overplayed a little bit. Like, you know, in general, around the league, uh, individual players' playing time is down. Um, 
you know, so anyway, uh, just as a kind of a caveat to the, the minutes thing, it's a lot of minutes, but he's also taking games off. And, you know, and that just that doesn't sway me a ton on the LeBron front. Now, to your question on Russ, um, it's a pretty nuanced topic. Uh, I, I don't know where I fall on it, you know, other than to say what, what I already did, which is if their record was was mediocre or even close to mediocre when he had a triple double, then that would really kind of take some air out of the balloon. But they have a fantastic record gets triple doubles um and that that kind of accusation of him chasing them you know it just it feels a little bit hollow to me because the inherent nature of a triple double is helping your teammates you know what i mean like we should all be so lucky to to have you know teammates who are chasing triple doubles because that means i'm getting spoon fed you know that means he's hitting the glass uh, you know i mean if you're stealing the rebounds and this has been dissected in a really smart way by some of my colleagues, uh, the idea that with, with rebounds in particular, you know, Annis Cantor, Steven Adams, a lot of times they do get out of Russ's way. And, and so at first you had people feeling like that was selfish. That was not the right way to play the game. But then you, you, you understand that the way that the Thunder get out on the break, it's advantageous for Russ to be the guy with the ball immediately. And you lose that little hiccup in time, whatever it might be. 0.7 seconds, 1.2 seconds, whatever, uh, where the guy who got the rebound would have to pass it off to Russ. You know, he is so fast and he's so good at pushing the tempo that it plays right into their style. So, I mean, are there nights when it's kind of obvious that he's chasing it and maybe it bugs you a little bit? Sure. But, you know, it, it, it hasn't been enough to turn my stomach at all. I think what he's been doing has been pretty incredible. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, it's it's a conundrum to me. You're right. I'm kind of trying to call up really quickly what their record is and all the triple doubles he's got. It looks like he's got 34 on the year, and he's one, two, three, four, five. They've only lost six of those. So that's yeah. You're right. I mean, that that is the conundrum because you know aesthetically, from a coach's perspective, I just don't really enjoy watching him play a lot of the time. It just seems like um, it's all a little bit. You know, it's a team game, right? And and we're supposed to sort of. You know, like that. And, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of like, you know, if you're a batter in, in baseball, you know, it's like, how can you really be selfish? You're trying to get a hit that's going to help your team. Um, right. And so it's similar to that. Uh, there is some stylistic things, and I suppose from a team standpoint, it, you know, you could end up hindering the team uh, if you're too dominant with it and they can't develop and find their own rhythms. Um, you know, I, you know that's, that's the case. I, I do think that I've gotten into some arguments on Twitter recently about the quality of his teammates. Uh, and for some reason, and maybe you can help me, I, I can lay down on your couch for a minute, but whenever I say, like, his teammates are a lot better than people think, like, they kind of want to call them all bums and they're not worth anything, he's carrying everything. And invariably, the Russell Westbrook fans will not only yell at me for saying that, but they'll also try and skew it like I'm, I'm simply trying to change the MVP argument. Which I just think I, all I thought I was doing was trying to stick up for some, you know, these role players that are doing nicely. No, I'm with you on that. I mean, I think he, he especially after the trade deadline with them getting Taj Gibson and Doug McDermott, you know, I thought those were good moves. Uh, and, and I like the supporting cast in OKC now. But here's the one distinction that I think gets Russ off the hook as far as the the allegation that he's, you know, that he's kind of messing with their potential, uh, which I think is partly what you're kind of saying, mm -hmm. is when it comes to usage rate and it comes to 
just putting the ball in his hands. I mean, this is historic stuff. He's got the ball more than anybody, I believe, ever in the history of the game. Mm-hmm. And that and that should be accounted for. But I don't I just as a coach, and you know, you're the guy with actual coaching experience, like I don't know, like who's the other playmaker that you want handling the ball more? Because the day that Kevin Durant skipped town, that option went out the window. They don't have guys who I want to see him. I mean, Oladipo, sure, a little bit, but he's not doing anything more, you know, more special uh, than within what Russ is going to do with it. And he's become a willing passer. And that could change over time if the Thunder make moves this summer and they say they get a three-man in there who has that kind of playmaking ability. And then you have a sharing of the duties uh, a la the Cavs a little bit. I mean, Kyrie's not, not a playmaker, but, you know, LeBron is – most of the time playing that role. The Warriors are probably a better example. You could have Steph run the offense. You can have Draymond run the offense. When Bogut was there, he could help run the offense from the post. So the, the Thunder don't have those options. So that's why I'm mostly comfortable with how much Russ has the ball in his hand. And listen, with me on usage rate, you know, the hypothetical of whether or not James or LeBron or Kawhi could do similar things if they had the ball in their hands that much, I think that overlooks the idea that Russ's motor is, you know, another aspect of his game that needs to be credited, needs to be appreciated, because I've had coaches tell me that that those other guys might not not be able to do what he does every single day on the second night of back-to-backs, not resting. He, you know, he corrected some local OKC media the other day when they had acted as if he had rested several times during his career. It's it's a very short amount of times that he's ever rested. He, he's not one of those guys that rest, and then he'll give you you know, every ounce of energy that he has on the second night of the back-to-back. You know, I saw that earlier this year when they had a Portland-Utah back-to-back and just kind of marveled at the fact that he still goes 100 miles an hour every minute he's on the floor. So, you know, he's an interesting case study, very, you know, kind of controversial, uh, fun to debate about. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Again, I think James is out front, and uh, we'll see if he can win it. For sure. Well, speaking of giving every ounce of energy uh, to our podcast, this is certainly what you did today with us, Sam. I I can't thank you enough for coming on and breaking some stuff down for us. Uh, What are you working on right now? What should we expect to read from you uh, over on USA Today coming up? Well, we've been trying to be all over the, you know, the rest discussion. I enjoyed yesterday writing kind of an FAQ, analyzing the situation, some reporting in there on the specifics of why the Cavs upset Adam Silver and the specifics about league protocol relating to reporting on injuries and illness and rest and, and where the Cavs got sideways with the NBA. Uh, that issue is not going away. April 6th, all of a sudden, is a lot more interesting. The Board of Governors meeting where they're going to have a pretty robust discussion on this topic. Uh, I think it's an interesting moment for Adam Silver because he has been accused, the longer he's been in office, so to speak, of, of being very productive and, and fantastic for the league, but but after the Donald Sterling saga, not necessarily a, a, a Stern-like, you know, a David Stern-like disciplinarian. And and this is a different side of Adam. He had a lot of Stern language in that memo that he sent out to teams about resting. And this is an issue that they want to get to the bottom of. And, you know, this is maybe a podcast for another day, but um, I, I find it fascinating that there could be real discussion about does the season need to get shorter? You know, and I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I feel like everything's going to be on the table discussion-wise because this is not a tenable formula where they have ABC primetime games getting ruined consecutive weeks in a row because of the 
schedule because of rest. I think Adam is, uh, you know, he's hearing from the TV partners, you know, maybe even hearing from the Vegas folks who, you know, have a lot of money funneled in one direction on a certain game. And then next thing you know, guys sitting, it changes everything. So uh, interesting stuff. And, and that topic's not going away anytime soon. For sure, for sure. I, mean, I think that the, one of the easiest ways to do it is not necessarily shorten the season in games, but just lengthen it so they don't have to have as many back-to-backs and four games and five nights. And it looks like they're already taking steps to do that uh, as it is. But, you know, I, I, and I would wish, I guess, we could start even earlier because we're already into, like, the end of October, which is crazy to start a season for a winter sport, uh, and then going into June. But, uh, yeah, it seems to me that that would be the only way to do it is just simply because no one's going to cut games, right? I think the only way to add another like seven, eight, nine days to the season and try and then you know budget those games better. No, I agree. Uh, I just I, I'm intrigued though by the idea that everybody assumes that if you cut games, you lose revenue, and I, I'm kind of starting to feel like you got to be a little more creative than that. And remember that the NFL, you know, take a page out of their book and remember that appointment viewing is potentially. Uh, you know, incrementally more profitable than what the NBA has now. I'm a guy who covers the NBA, and there are countless games every week where I feel like I should watch them. I probably need to watch them, and I don't really want to watch them because there are so many. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but but then you have the other ones. Like, oh boy, the Warriors are in Oklahoma City. It's appointment viewing, and you stop what you're doing, and you watch every minute of it. And guess what? You watch the commercials, and then you know if you got more eyeballs on those commercials then that's that's profits that's revenue um i'm not i'm not one of those people that buys into the idea that if you cut games you cut revenue i think you know if you did it the right way again taking uh you know just a a page out of the nfl's book i think that's got to be remembered because the oversaturating the market with content with inventory I don't think it's the way to go. I hear you. That's a really great point as well. And I think what you're also saying is what we can quote you on this, right? Where you hate watching when the Orlando Magic play the Phoenix Suns. Have they ever played? Because I've never watched that game. Uh, That would be the example, I think, that we're talking about. I hear you because, and then really quickly, because, you know, you guys are all in charge of voting for all the MVPs. And, you know, it's impossible for you to watch all the games. And, and I think there's a big backlash at this point on a lot of the voting of this stuff because it def- definitely can, tends to feel like uh, not enough games are being watched by the decision makers in this. And, and I don't know, you know, do you feel that way? Um, I do. Um, you, you know, and I think, you know, I know this is going to sound biased, but I've got incentive to cover as much ground as possible, right? Because I cover the whole league in terms of watching. And so... You know, you do have to take pride in doing your homework and, and not just paying attention to only ABC primetime games. What what I think, and I've been in, in this position too, what is challenging sometimes, like when I covered the Kings in Sacramento and you got your eyeballs on one team all the time and sure you see the opponent, you see who they're playing. Um, I think those are when the voters that, that are coming from specific markets where, you know, say you're in Houston, and you see James Harden every day. I mean, you know, I, I guarantee you the votes coming out of OKC and Houston and San Antonio and Cleveland, you know, are, are going to be pretty heavily favored towards those particular MVP candidates because, you know, that's just human nature. So it's hard to cut through all that. I certainly don't think, you know, I mean, I don't know what the solution is. But, again, the, the inventory, if you will, on games and action, uh, it's pretty tremendous. There's a lot of NBA basketball being played all week long, all year long. 
and uh, it's tough to keep on top of all of it. Yeah, I mean, I say this all the time. All I do all day is watch NBA games, and I still haven't seen, you know, I haven't seen the Magic or the Bucks or the Suns play in months. So, right. you know what right. I mean? I might catch a highlight, but I haven't seen any significant, you know, meaningful minutes of a lot of these teams. And, uh, and you know, yet you have other guys who are going out there and um, and getting on different media uh, platforms and talking like they are. And I, I just, I just got, it's interesting. It is, for sure. I mean, when I went down to L.A. recently, I had a little bit of humble pie on that front where certain developments that, you know, that I thought were new, uh, I had local beat writers kind of give me a hard time, like, no, that happened six weeks ago. You know, well, all right, I guess I'm not watching the Lakers that closely right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I had to kind of fix that. So, you know, it's it's uh, there's only so many hours in the day, and, and I think that's always going to play a part. Yeah. I mean, I, I interviewed T.J. McCollum last week, and I was talking about what it's like to play in New York against the Nets, and it turned out he it was in Portland, <laughs> the game. So yeah. I, was, uh, I was way off when I was watching those that highlight. So. Well, anyhow, uh, Sam, I can't thank you enough for uh, for coming on the show today and breaking some really great stuff down for us across the board. Uh, and uh, we'll have to catch up with you real soon. Sounds good, Nick. Good to talk to you. Thanks, buddy. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're conversation. You in? Are you in, Sam? I'm in, Nick. 